Hello, everybody, and welcome to Narrative Live on a very special Thursday edition of the show. It's January the 6th, one year later, and we do have a very special broadcast for you tonight and a very special guest, so please stick around. We'll find out who that is in just a few minutes. We are one year from the day America suffered its deepest wound, and we're only just beginning to recover from it. January the 6th is the wound into which all our national frustration, division, and pent-up hatred could flow. We all knew something bad was going to happen on that day, but perhaps there was a lack of imagination or fatigue after four years of punishing rule by Donald Trump. None of us could foresee the events of that day enough to stop them. Instead, we watched each excruciating minute play out before our eyes on every TV network and on all our phones, every screen we had. If you've ever been in a car crash, you know those seconds seem to go on forever. Well, that was all of us on January the 6th all passengers on two runaway cars destined to collide. We survived, but only just. January the 6th left a national wound for all the world to see, sliced into our body politic and leaving us dazed and confused. For the outgoing president, a deliberate attack on democracy, or as President Biden called it today, a dagger at the throat of America and American democracy. You can't love your country only when you win. You can't obey the law only when it's convenient. You can't be patriotic when you embrace and enable lies. Those who stormed this Capitol, and those who instigated and incited, and those who called on them to do so, held a dagger at the throat of America, at American democracy. They didn't come here out of patriotism or principle. They came here in rage not in service of America, but rather in service of one man. Those who incited the mob, the real plotters who were desperate to deny the certification of this election and defy the will of the voters. But their plot was foiled. Congressmen, Democrats, Republicans stayed. Senators, representatives, staff, they finished their work the Constitution demanded. They honored their oath to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. One year later, and we still feel the pain. Narrative has aired more than 50 investigative hours into the events of January the 6th. I was among the first to ring the alarm of what was coming when I tweeted this in November. Trump's fired the person in charge of the nuclear stockpile, the defense secretary, and says he intensifies the CIA and FBI directors. Hard to say exactly what, but it looks suspiciously like Trump is executing a final maneuver for Putin and Netanyahu. The House should confine his powers. And then, a year ago, on this day, at 3.30 in the afternoon, I called for Trump's impeachment. Trump needs to be impeached and removed from office and into custody immediately. A year of independent investigation, a lot of it crowdsourced by many fantastic journalists and the viewers of the show has confirmed what we all know to be true. This was not an organic demonstration of the will of the people. This was a planned and organized event. And as we will show you again tonight, those two cars that collided on January the 6th, they didn't crash into each other by accident. They were set on a collision course. That was the intended result. Donald Trump began to assemble and cultivate the people who stormed the Capitol as early as 2014. Throughout his term, his allies used military-grade psychological warfare techniques to brainwash Americans into accepting lies and misinformation, first about Trump-Russia, then about coronavirus, 
and then about the 2020 election. He didn't do it himself, of course. As has been proven, Trump's weapons of mass disinformation are operated out of Russia, and likely the UAE, and from Israel. And as we've proven here on Narrative, the money flowing to Donald Trump always seems to come from China. We've shown you how Beijing funds Sheldon Adelson and his estate, Eric Prince, Steve Bannon, Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump, they all profit of China. Why did President Xi treat Trump to such a heroic welcome on his first state visit to China, complete with a visit to the Forbidden City and Trump's granddaughter serenading Xi on videotape at least? And why is Trump's new media empire, cynically called Truth, being funded by China? How did the Epoch Times and NTDTV, both allied to China, how come they were so supportive of Donald Trump? And why do they have such close ties to Steve Bannon? And of course, it's not just China. We've shown you how a Russian disinformation agent helped foster and plan the insurrection. And he used his news outlet, Russia Insider, to foster extremism. And we've shown you him on videotape roaming the capital a year ago today. So today we're going to take you inside the Trump campaign and reveal how through Steve Bannon, Trump cultivated the alt-right movement, which delivered him his insurrectionist troops. As often happens when talking to insiders of the Trump campaign, our guest tonight is very controversial. You'll know him as Chuck Johnson, the internet provocateur. He's said and done many questionable things. But that's not why he's here tonight. He's here tonight because he was also Steve Bannon's operative of choice. When Bannon was running Breitbart and during Donald Trump's 2016 campaign, he was also a part of the transition team and he has an inside look and he will reveal a lot of this tonight at how Steve Bannon and Donald Trump went after the alt-right movement in order to foster the secessionist movement, which led up to January the 6th. but if someone will study the president's uh, authority in the Insurrection Act and in the, his ability to impose, impose the martial law. President Trump won this election, so everyone who's listening, do not be quiet. Do not be, do not be silent about this. We cannot allow this to happen before our very eyes. Philadelphia elections are crooked as a snake. That every time they close the doors and, and shut out the lights, they always find more Democratic votes. Trump announced Wednesday he's also pardoning his former national security advisor, Michael Flynn. People out there talking about martial law, it's like it's something that we've never done. We've done, the martial law has been instituted 64, 64 times. And we're working co uh, closely with Congressman Mo Brooks, closely with Congressman Andy Biggs, Congressman, obviously, Paul Gosar, my great friend. 
have to go all the way, and that's what's happening. And you watch what happens over the next couple of weeks. You watch what's going to come out. Watch what's going to be revealed. In the next couple of days, I think we're going to see some extraordinary historical moments. The, uh, the truth is going to come out. Donald Trump will continue to be the president of the United States. Appreciate you, man. Thank you very much. So hopefully we have this today, right? We shall see. We shall see. That's just to look back at one of the uh, promos we put together as we were heading into the first impeachment trial to help underline for everybody that there was indeed a party effort, not just a one person effort, not just Donald Trump and his operatives, but a party effort to have the insurrection on January the 6th. And that was a good look back at that. Hopefully this works. I have only just got in touch with Charles Johnson, but Charles, are you there? Yes. Yes. Sorry. Hey. I'm traveling. So it's a little uh, discombobulated. Than it we see you. We hear you. And it's great to... Uh, make contact with you for the first time. You know, I, uh, you probably didn't hear the lead up into the segment, but I was telling everybody about your role as being firstly very controversial. And we know that there's a lot to cover in terms of the things you've done. We're not going to go there tonight. Maybe we'll do it a bit later on because what I really want to focus on is what you did with Steve Bannon at the time when you were his sort of chief operative at Breitbart and during the campaign and really focus on how you and him were involved in bringing together the alt-right movement behind Donald Trump. And perhaps you can tell us a little bit first about why you're here because this is not your typical place. This is not a place you'd normally find uh, Chuck Johnson. And of course, I'll call you Charles now. But, you know, it's not who you were to everybody, at least from public perception, for you to be on this show. But you are here tonight to reveal a lot of things, including that you're now a Biden supporter. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You know, I, I was thinking, you know, when I was driving to, you know, what we were going to say here. And I was thinking, like, you know, when did I first meet Steve Bannon and sort of what the context was there and sort of what sort of happened over the course of the time in which I've known him. And what I can tell you is so I first met him in 20. 2012, which is kind of crazy to think about. Now we're in 2022. So it's, it's almost been a decade, which is kind of crazy to think about. And, you know, in that time, he went from being kind of this like shambolic guy who, you know, is very unclear what his real finances were. It was very unclear kind of like what his whole, his whole vision of the world was. And he went from being this kind of like strange LA guy whose money was always kind of opaque to having this like podcast where he's like talking to millions of people a day. And it's just really incredible, like just how far that that's gone over the course of these years. And I would say too, like, you know, Bannon is very good at identifying like young people of talent or ambition, paying them a bunch of money. I was one such person. There are many other examples, you know, the Matthew Boyles, the Natalie Winters of the world. And what he does is he's very good at like picking up on your insecurities and sort of like, you know, putting you in a certain position that you probably wouldn't feel comfortable with. You know, in 2016, obviously I supported Donald Trump. I still think that Donald Trump was the correct decision over Hillary Clinton. And we could maybe go into that. But my basic view is, is that Jeffrey Epstein would be in the White House now, you know, visiting probably some sort of party or something. 
thing. My view is that actually it was a mob war 2016 between the Clintons and the Trumps. And my view basically is that I'm glad Trump got elected, but I think he needed to be defeated given that his presidency was really nuts and chaotic. And And he's actually forcing us to have conversations now about the state of our society and our system of government that I wanted to have long before Trump. And so now let's just be clear here because we're coming from two very different perspectives and our audience is probably going, what the hell has Zev done by putting sure. Charles Johnson on the air? And the truth is, I knew this is going to be as controversial as anything, but I really want to have this conversation. And especially today on January the 6th, for us to really understand what was going on inside the White House, we really understand what was going on inside the campaign in terms of a strategic perspective to try and foster the alt-right. And there are people indeed like Charles who do think, and I will disagree with him endlessly, and I've done this on the phone many times, that, you know, there's no justification for the Donald Trump presidency and that we were in fact, you know, handed a foreign controlled mobbed up leader who was installed in our White House, probably. Yeah, I, don't, I would say too, I don't necessarily disagree with that. In fact, I think a lot of the focus on the Russia collusion stuff was a way of dodging from focusing on Netanyahu's involvement in helping Trump get elected or uh, the UAE's involvement. I mean, we see today there was another indictment of somebody in uh, Egypt related guy who got $10 million from CC's government. So I would just say generally, I think people underestimate the role of foreign governments and the role that they play in shaping our politics. Just as the US, you know, plays a role in shaping other countries' governments around the world, so too do those governments want to shape our society. In the case of Trump, you know, he really was a an unknown entity, right? People knew him from Home Alone 2 and from The Apprentice. You know, I used to like watch The Apprentice with my grandma, you know. So it's like we didn't know how sinister things were going to get. And I think, you know, what Bannon likes to do is he likes to identify sort of shiny new toys, shiny new young people. And I was one such person, you know, and my view was was that the Clintons were very much a dangerous force in our politics. And I think in many respects, they were you know, pro-war, pro-going to war in, in Libya, which the only person, by the way, who opposed going to war in Libya is actually Joe Biden, who's now president of the United States. And if the only thing we both do agree on is that Joe Biden is the right person to be at the White House right now. That's right. Yeah. And I would say too, better- like, that Joe Biden is actually like much more of a sensible Democrat, much more, you know, I listened to his speech after we spoke on the phone. And I've got to say, you know, there's a lot in there that I agree with. And I think that Biden is probably too old for the job. I would have liked him to be president like five to 10 years earlier. But I think that the themes that he's harping on and that he's sort of addressing are are important ones. These last five years were extremely chaotic in our society. And I think they're going to increasingly get more chaotic as there's an attack on, you know, on on our sort of our way of life. And you can see that in attacks on the monetary system through cryptocurrencies. You can see that through, you know, foreign governments sending their operatives to influence our media environment. You know, you can see this in Twitter influencers that are often co-opted and controlled by different countries. I write about some of this, you know, if you Google my name, you know, Charles Johnson Substack, you can see some of the stuff I've said, you know, about Alan Dershowitz and Jeffrey Epstein, people who I knew, you know, back when I worked for, uh, you know, for Alan Dershowitz in high school. And then I worked for Bannon. You know, the first time I met Bannon uh, was late 2010. So it kind of gives you a sense of how far back we're going. How did that happen? Yeah. Walk us through that experience. And, you know, there's, there's a lot we will disagree on. I'm just going to yeah. put yeah. that to the side right now. But take us to the moment yeah, so first met Steve Bannon. Yeah, I'll give you the, the story and then we can kind of go through what it kind of all means or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I first met Steve Bannon through Andrew Breitbart, who I knew socially in the LA area. I'm from the Boston area. I went to college out in California and I was blogging and sort of writing about student things at my college. And I was invited to meet 
meet this guy Andrew Breitbart at a hotel, the Lux Hotel of all places in LA. My friend drove because at the time I didn't really have a license. So I met him. Andrew was very gregarious, very friendly, but he had a sort of like mean streak. Like he wanted to fight all the time. He's sort of into this whole war, war approach. Um, and this is something that I think a lot of people don't really realize about a lot of these platforms is you know, Breitbart, Fox. There's a sort of emotional appeal that they have of like trying to amp up controversy, amp up sort of us versus them. It, it reminds me a lot of like a pep rally in high school almost. It's sort of like, it's not so much about the content of the speech. It's about just getting people riled up. Mm. And so I met Bannon, you know, he sort of would call me at all hours of the night. At the time I needed the money, you know, I was relatively young, you know, I was paying like a six figure salary. I guess I was like 24 or something when I first started working with him. And which was, you know, money that I needed, you know, to pay my student loans to do other sorts of things. And what happened was in 2016, you know, I said to Bannon, I think it's going to be Cruz and Trump in the final two. And I think Cruz will probably beat him because he'll coalesce the anti-Trump support. Bannon was like, no, it'll be Trump all the way through. I said, okay, well, you know, you know better than I do. I don't really know, but like, don't the Mercers support Cruz? And he's like, no, no, no I'll handle the Mercers. Don't worry about that. And at this time, there was this group of people on the right who were sort of, they were calling themselves alternative to the right or alt-right. But later that kind of got negative connotations. But basically the argument was people who were against the sort of endless wars, Basically, people who are critics of sort of the ultra-Zionist, invade the world, invite the world kind of approach of foreign policy of, say, of Paul Ryan. And Paul Ryan had been backed, you know, very strongly by Paul Singer, who was, you know, is a neocon, very pro-Israel billionaire out of New York, who's actually the one who initially funded the Fusion GPS stuff before it was taken over. Hmm. And there was all these sort of foreigners intervening in our politics on the Republican side. So here was Trump, who was sort of like, nobody knew kind of what to make of him, right? It was... Clear to me he had sort of mob ties, but you know, I'm from Boston originally. I've known a lot of people with mob ties. There is a pro-American mob, right? So the question for me was, is Trump you know, pro-American? Like, what is his actual foreign policy? What's he actually gonna do when he's president? And my attitude was, worst case scenario, we just won't have Hillary Clinton as president and that'll be good enough. Best case scenario is that he would grow in the office. And I think what's clear to me is that he just punted all of the major decisions to Jared Kushner, to various other people in his orbit. And he really just wanted to be seen to be president rather than actually be president himself. And for me, the really dangerous part of the Trump presidency was towards the tail end of his presidency, where he seemed to allow really radical people who had weird ties to foreign governments, you know, involved. And the the other big thing for me was, you know, Steve Bannon, you know, it's public that I talked to the FBI about Steve Bannon. And, you know, he wanted to be introduced to Jeffrey Epstein. And, you know, my view, I didn't really understand what Jeffrey Epstein was when I was in high school, when I worked for Alan Dershowitz. I didn't quite understand that he was, you know, an international spy. I mean, my view was was that he was sort of a wealthy guy who'd gotten in trouble, you know, with, you know, young girls and young women in the Palm Beach area. My view is everyone has a right to a defense, including like really evil people. But I didn't really understand kind of what he was until later after I'd left, you know, working for Dershowitz and went to college on the West Coast. And there were all these people, you know, in the tech industry of which I'm now a part and others who started like befriending Jeffrey Epstein and continue a relationship with him. So the Dershowitz angle and the sort of relationship there, I just felt that Epstein was kind of a dangerous figure. And so what became clear to me is that when Trump won, 
you know, he wasn't expected to win. I was one of the very few people that actually had a list of people I wanted to put into the government. And Bannon was very much like shepherding that process. And Bannon, by the way, didn't even know Trump until Rebecca Mercer made a large donation to his campaign. And we can get into who the Mercers yeah. really you know, are. Why don't we slow down a little bit? There's so much here you're packing into this description you're sharing with us. I'm sure the audience is going, what, what, what? So um, I want to, you know, we'll get back to Epstein. We'll get back to Dershowitz. Yeah. Those are incredibly main, important people. I would say, the main two things that sort of changed my views on the election yeah. was, was the Jeffrey Epstein's arrest. Mm -hmm. That was sort of like a what the fuck moment because I sort of realized that there was all these things that I didn't really understand about the world. So that was thing one. And then the other thing too was, was just seeing the degree to which these foreign governments would try to compromise me, try to get into my inner circle when my phone was hacked at one point. And then of course, when the FBI called me to ask me about all the leaking that Steve Bannon was doing after his first year in office. And I was like, oh, there's something like much more nefarious going on here than just like raw politics. You know, one of the things I really want to point out to people is this picture, which is kind of famous. Yep. This is Bibi Netanyahu and Andrew Breitbart. It must be in 2007, maybe maybe a little later. I'm not sure. A little yeah. later. I think, it's, I think it dates to 2009, actually. Okay. All right. So let's say 2009. But, you know, what's going on in this picture? Because it's not it's not an association people normally make. That's right. I mean, so Netanyahu is pictured in the center. Obviously, you can see Andrew Breitbart. And there's actually Jim Hoff, um, who's in the far right there, who's the head of Gateway Pundit. And standing Steve, up there? Is yeah, that right? Standing up. He's the yeah. one who's yeah. wearing the uh, far right of the image mm -hmm. the guy with the glasses and then the guy seated seated is scott johnson who runs powerline blog and then the guy who's directly next to andrew but right behind netanyahu is larry solov who's the business partner of breitbart news and he's I don't know that. He's now the CEO, isn't he? I think yeah. he's now the CEO. He's now the decision maker. Yeah. And what was interesting to me was, uh, you know, when I worked at Breitbart, you know, we started having all these foreign connected individuals, largely Israelis, but not exclusively Israelis. There were like Georgians. To be honest with you, at the time, I didn't even know it was a country. I sort of like vaguely knew it. But there were all these like weird people that came out of the woodwork with scoops that they had that they wanted to get published at Breitbart.com. At the time, there was like big government, big foreign policy, what have you. And there was very little due diligence of this sort of thing. And I later when I worked at the Wall Street Journal editorial page under Barry Weiss, I saw the same sort of thing where there were these foreign entities that would sort of like dress up their arguments in like op-ed form or like, here's a great new scoop for you, kid, like, let me give it to you. And what became clear to me, you know, in hindsight and, and basically over time is that there is a concerted effort to kind of launder information into our media ecosystem, be it a, you know, and, and that the particularly, they start at the, the prestige publications. So they started like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post. BuzzFeed is very much involved with the Israelis. Uh, Gawker, of course, which would later attack me, is heavily involved with the Russians or was heavily involved with the Russians. And what would happen is basically they'd launder it through this system until they get to a Breitbart or to a Gateway Pundit or to a Scott Johnson at Powerline, for example, uh, lately. So in daughter, this picture, though, just to be clear, yeah. this is the launch of Breitbart. Netanyahu right. actually launching the Breitbart news operation? Yeah, this is actually from a post that Larry Solov wrote about how the origins of the Breitbart empire date from these meetings with Netanyahu. And you know, Andrew Breitbart, you know, is now, I guess this will be 10 years in March that he's deceased. Mm -hmm. And he, which is, you know, however you feel about him, dying at 43 is too young. But, you know, he died. And then the person who took over the operation was Steve Bannon. 
Bannon. And Bannon took it over with money from Rebecca Mercer. And the Mercers, of course, are famous for Cambridge Analytica. Uh, they're also heavily invested in Parler. And it's my contention, and I've said this publicly, and I've said this to people around, that the Mercers are very much in league with a foreign power. I think it happens to be the Russian Federation. But I think there are many countries that are sort of like connected to them in various ways. And that's sort of my assessment of the evidence at hand. Right. So it was only 2016, I guess, when Bannon became the new editor-in-chief or the executive editor or something like that. Do you know if that's, that's right? right? That's right. That's when he sort of was the money behind it. So he was sort of the chairman of it. And so right. what was interesting- Executive was, chairman, that's correct. That's the title, executive chairman. Yes. And my recollection of this is basically Bannon saw Breitbart as an opportunity to kind of build a name for himself and build sort of a power base. And he was very interested. I mean, he had this little radio program that he'd have people on. He was very interested in sort of like whipping people up into a frenzy because he felt that they were underserved by the political class, which I happen to agree with at the time. Like, I think that the Paul Ryan establishment wing of the Republican Party is itself very compromised by various actors. What you started to realize rather quickly in dealing with the Republican Party is that there are lots of different factions in it that belong to different intelligence networks. Mm -hmm. The most famous of which is, of course, Denny Hastert, who we now know is a child molester, who is very plugged in with Turkish intelligence. And so we live in a world in which there are many Epsteins and there are many foreign intelligence operations running and influencing our politics. Mm, that's and, quite a statement there. You know, and the thing that Bannon did is he turned Breitbart into the home of the alt-right. That was the new editorial policy. Yep, he what said does that we'll mean? Be a, Who is the alt-right? Will be a platform for the alt-right. Mm -hmm. You know, it started out, you know, innocuous enough that there were all these critiques that could be made of the Republican establishment that had failed on numerous policies. Essentially unrestricted immigration, you know, global free trade that would lead people to lose their jobs. You know, that was the sort of like, you know, the Paul Ryan view of like invading mm -hmm. Everyone from around the world, you know, you basically endless wars in the Middle East. And so the alt-right sort of started as a critique of that movement. But as time grew on, it became clear that there were people who were foreign actors involved in this movement, and that a lot of the online right, the influencer world, was controlled or affected by foreign governments. And we first saw this with the Anthony Weiner story the first time round, where that story was sort of planted with Breitbart. And there were all these questions around Anthony Weiner as a member of Congress you know, sort of what was going on with him. And that Andrew would break these stories and these scoops, and then he would sort of take over the news cycle. And it was clear that, you know, he didn't really have a investigative operation. He was being handed these things, gifted them. And I think we are certainly, we've seen a lot more of that in recent years with people like, you know, with the James O'Keefe's of the world, however well-intentioned. And I want to be clear here, like, I think sometimes people are dupes of these foreign governments, not necessarily complicit in sort of these sorts of things, but they're oftentimes taken advantage of. And I think one of the reasons I wanted to speak out on these issues is I think people are getting radicalized or they're being sort of led astray on the game that's really being played. And so, yeah, Steve Bannon. Are you saying Steve Bannon is unaware of what No, I would say Steve Bannon is very much complicit in this. And then yeah, Bannon yeah. does it for ego and for money. I mean, let's take, let's look at like his trajectory. He first worked for Rebecca Mercer, who I've, I've accused, and I think the evidence points to her being involved with the Russians. And you yeah, I think that's, of, uh, I've said the same thing, and I think I agree with that. I concur. Yeah, yeah. So, so then, then you have him going to work uh, giving speeches for ZOA, and ZOA 
way is the Zionist Organization of America, which is a sort of a Likud front group. And if you Google Zionist Organization of America and FARA, you'll see that the FBI on repeated occasions wanted to force ZOA to register as an agent of the Likud party. From there, he goes to work for Guo Wangui. And Guo Wangui, you know, the FBI and others have pointed that he's under investigation. You know, the, I think the evidence that Mike Waller has amassed and others have amassed is pretty compelling that Guo is actually a fake dissident that actually works for the Chinese state. Yeah, um, I think, I think that's 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 so we've also reported that and I, I'll concur with that as well as, you know, it seems that Falun Gong is not really as opposed to the Chinese state as, as we would have been led to believe that in fact they are, yeah. along with Epoch Times and NTD TV, are in fact, you know, perhaps very supportive of Xi as they are of Trump. That's right. And I should say too, you know, Bannon has a lot of very strange people around him and had a number of them for many years, like the Brock Pierces of the world who is involved with DEN, which is this digital entertainment mm-hmm. network, which is a sort of a pedophile ring. There's this stuff about Steve Bannon's connections with like a meth house at one point. You know, Andy Badalato, who's somebody that Bannon introduced me to, who's a very nice guy, but like it's very clear that he's mobbed up, like he's connected with various organized crime folks. He was indicted alongside Bannon for the We Build the Wall situation. And I think there's a lot of Bannon that's basically, I would call it like an intellectual cul-de-sac. It's leading people down dangerous paths for themselves and for others. And I think that's kind of what happened on January 6th is, you know, I had a number of friends who were present there who were not in the building, though I have known a few people who were in the building, but the number of people who were protesting and unhappy with the state of the government. And I think people have a right to peacefully assemble and address the government, whatever issue they support. But I would say they were led astray on a number of topics and they were amped up by these sort of crazy podcasts and crazy websites. And same thing I think happens, by the way, with Black Lives Matter, where people are whipped up into a frenzy around the unfortunate you know, deaths of Black Americans at the hands of police. I think both things are used by foreign actors to destabilize the country and pull it apart. And that's sort of what, you know, you and I have been talking for a while and I've talked with other folks and I've talked with people in the government and outside the government and elsewhere. You've said, you know, you're in an interesting position because, you know, you were involved with helping Trump get elected, was heavily involved in the transition, you know, friendly with Peter Thiel and with a number of these characters. And you've sort of come to the conclusion that a lot of these things are dangerous and not helping to serve the the long-term interests of the country. And so that's partly why I'm talking about these things. I tend to prefer writing to talk talking just generally doing a good but, job uh, though couldn't, couldn't do what you do every day i mean it seems like a lot of work it, it is a lot of work but you're doing a fa- fantastic job telling everyone what's going on you know this idea that i i don't know if you heard the intro to the segment that i had which is you know, it almost feels like, you know, these two cars that collided on January the 6th and they were on a collision course. They were set on that collision course, which feels to be foreign intelligence services. I mean, certainly the division, the polarization in America, whether it's from coronavirus or Trump Russia or even the Stop the Steal or the, all the various other things that they've come up with. You know, that polarization is intentional. It was created by a lot of propaganda, by a lot of, uh, whether it's Fox News, OAN, or any of the other, you know, Facebook, any of these other polarization outlets. And yet that seems to be controlled by foreign entities or at least influenced by foreign entities. Some of it might be domestic, of course, as well. By pulling us so far apart and then setting us into that collision course, it almost feels like January the 6th was part of the plan all the way early on before he was even elected. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think street violence is almost always egged on by larger parties, right? And you can see this. There's all sorts of weird money trails now being exposed by the January 6th committee, which, you know, I I support people knowing all the actors who are present, including, by the way, I should say the FBI agents who are present, Mm -hmm. because I think that there is a case to 
to be made that the FBI did egg on some of the more susceptible people as well. Like, I, I want to be clear about this. As much as I'm a fan of law enforcement, I think that it wasn't their finest hour either. You know, like the fact that there's a hundred and some odd, you know, police officers who were wounded that day, the fact that there was no backup and whether that's Trump is to blame for that, for not calling in the National Guard or who's to blame for that, I think is another question entirely. But it, it does seem like there was a trap laid on January 6th by many different actors who all wanted to use it for their own interests. And those interests were fundamentally not in the interests of a peaceful transition of power. Thank you for spending your time with Narrative and stay tuned. There's much more to this conversation in our next episode. Narrative is made possible by viewers and listeners like you who join at patreon.com forward slash narrative. Join today and support truly independent journalism. Patreon.com forward slash narrative.